going to conclude our study of uh, 2 Corinthians now, with, uh, chapters 12 and 13, having a look at uh, the, the thorn in the flesh. But the, the context of that is really set in uh, chapters 10 and 11, where Paul has uh, tried to, tongue-in-cheek as it were, talk about his qualification as an apostle and the uh, authority which therefore he had and the respect which he ought to have been uh, afforded. And it was common in the first century for someone in Paul's position to write what was called an encomium. And an encomium was uh, like a sort of um, a CV of your uh, achievements in your life, um, they use the phrase the, the glorious deeds of the body to talk about your achievements, your work, etc., what you looked like, how physically strong you were, etc. And yet in chapter 11, it seems that Paul is sort of inverting the whole thing. He says that he is going to glory, chapter 11, verse 30, or boast of things that show my weakness. And he talks as if the fact that he suffered all the things that he did and was in such desperate need of God's deliverance and salvation was really the ultimate proof that um, he was nothing. And this is the great paradox that uh, it is not human strength, it is rather our dependence upon God and our being nothing in order to be made something, which is uh, all important. When he talks uh, at the end of chapter 11 of all these things that he went through, he's talking really about how God has saved him in his very weakest moments. And then in, in verse 30 of chapter 11, he says, Well, if I have got a boast, I will boast of glory of things which concern my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus knows that I lie not. And he set us up here to expect him to come out with some amazing statement. And he just says, Well, I was let down over a over a, uh, a wall in Damascus uh, by a basket in a basket in order to um, escape those who wanted to kill me and we might shrug and say well what's so significant about that well uh, the Roman soldier who was first up a wall and into a conquered city got a special award called a wall crown or the wall crown and yet Paul says that he will boast of being the first down the wall running as it were from the enemy and he says that that is his sort of his claim to fame so all the time it's this great paradox that humility is greatness that he boasts of glories in things which concern my weakness and then this leads in to chapter 12 when he talks about the uh, the thorn in the flesh now he's clearly talking here about himself when he says i knew a man in christ uh, 13 years, uh, 14 years ago, verse 12, it's interesting that the RV says, not I knew a man in Christ, but I know a man in Christ. And I think, <clears throat> I think he's pretty obviously talking about himself, but he's saying that any, any human glory that he had was sort of not him. He kind of talks about himself in the third person. And he says that because of this, in order to humble him, verse 7, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, that I should not be exalted above measure. And I, he says, verse 8, I three times I prayed to the Lord that it might depart from me, and he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And I think that that has got to be taken in the whole context that he started there in chapter 11 of saying that the true greatness is in humility and is in our need. And that is the word I want to emphasize, that it is our need for God 
rather than him, as it were, being in need of our human strength, uh, which is all significant. Now, there's various ideas been put forward about this thorn in the flesh, poor eyesight. You know, when he, uh, he says in Galatians 4.15 that uh, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me, as if he had poor eyesight. Um, and then at the end of Galatians 6.11, he talks about what a large letter, and he's talking really about handwriting, uh, that he's written to them. And Acts 23 verse 1, Paul earnestly beholding the council implies, could imply that he was squinting at them. So it could have been poor eyesight, or it could have been uh, malaria, or, or something like that. He says 1 Corinthians 2 verse 3, that he was with them in weakness and trembling, which was... Um, uh, could be uh, used specifically about the uh, the shakes that uh, that you get with uh, with malaria, and that would explain chapter eleven verse twenty six here in two Corinthians where he says he was in peril of waters, where the uh, the mosquitoes breed, and all that is, I suppose, all possible. Um, but what I want to suggest is based on allusion to the Old Testament, and I think is therefore a stronger case, and also on the fact that, verse 9, it was the grace of the Lord that was in the end sufficient. Now, I, uh, I'd like to suggest then that this thorn in the flesh was a spiritual weakness, and the fact he talks about the flesh, well, nearly every time Paul talks about flesh, it is in, the, in a moral sense of uh, carnality, of, uh, of weakness, of sinfulness. And he's almost quoting, when he talks about thorns in the flesh, uh, he's almost quoting from the Septuagint in two places that you may like to just uh, scribble down. Numbers 33 verse 55 and Joshua 23 verse 13. He talks there about the thorns that would buffet the eyes of Israel. If they didn't drive out the tribes, the Canaanite tribes, and if they married their women. So the thorns in Israel's flesh which buffeted them, according to the Septuagint there of Numbers 33.55 and Joshua 23.13, were forbidden women. And the reference that he, he makes there to uh, the flesh, that it's, this thorn was in, in his flesh, uh, and I said that that normally has the idea of uh, carnality, um, that would imply to me that this could have been a besetting weakness for Paul. Another passage you may like to scribble down in the margin there is Ezekiel 28:24, 24, uh, talking again about the... Um, the Canaanites, that they were a pricking briar to the house of Israel and a grieving thorn. Let's just uh, scribble that down. Um, so then, it seems to me that if the, uh, the thorn in Israel's flesh, which buffeted them, was Canaanite women and intermarriage with Gentiles, with unbelievers, then it would seem to me that he has in mind here some sexual weakness. And that would make sense of Romans 7 verse 8, where he's talking very personally about his own flesh, whole chapter about Paul's flesh. 
And he says that we started off innocent as a child. He lived without the knowledge of law and without the knowledge of sin. And then he came to understand God's commandment. And he says, Romans 7 verse 8, that when the concept of God's commandments kind of registered with him, he says, this wrought in me, and I'm reading from the AV, this wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Now, what on earth does concupiscence mean? Well, it's... uh, a very conveniently archaic word for sexual lust. And that Greek word epithumia, which is uh, what it's translating, is invariably used in a sexual context. So he admits there, Romans 7 verse 8, that his whole knowledge of God's law created in him a sort of a sexual crisis. And you just have to bear that in mind. And also give, I think, appropriate weight to the fact that uh, most of the descriptions of early Christianity, I mean, secular descriptions of it outside of the Bible, mention that this was a religion largely of young women, that it was, for some reason, particularly attractive to females, I guess, because it was Paul himself who gave such value and meaning to, uh, to, to the female person. So it's not circumstantially kind of unlikely that Paul was going to run into all kind of problems with, uh, with women. And yet, we're told that God gave Paul this thorn in the flesh. And yet we also know that God tempts nobody in the sense that temptation is a process internal to human nature. That's what James 1, 13-15 is saying that you can't sort of blame God. The actual process of temptation is internal. And yet it would also be true to say that God can put you in a situation where you are tested. You know, Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit, not by the devil, but by the Spirit. And he was there tempted of the devil, however you wish to interpret that. Now, The wonderful thing that I see here is that God works even through our, not only our physical weakness, as Paul has talked about in chapter 11, but through our, let's say, our carnal weakness. That God works through our temptations, our moral weaknesses, even our moral failures. And that's why he says, verse 9 of chapter 12 here, my grace is sufficient for you. And I think grace is uh, invariably associated, I think, with really the idea of forgiveness. Of course, it is wider than that, but it includes that idea. And he goes on, For my strength, or my power, is made perfect in weakness. And again, this word translated weakness is very often used about moral weakness, not, not physical weakness. And he says, So I glory in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me, or may cover me, the RV margin says. Uh, Literally, the Greek idea means to, to spread a tent over me. Now, again, that idea of being covered, again has got the idea of forgiveness. And so when he he goes on there in verse 10, he, he glories in his weaknesses, and he also says in his necessities, his persecutions, his distresses. Uh, yes, he glories not only, he's saying, in the fact that he, he falls short uh, and he needs God's uh, 
forgiveness and God's covering in Christ. But in all his inadequacies, in all his not having enough strength, physically and also spiritually, that's how I read it. Because when I'm weak, then am I strong. Now, you've got to be fairly careful here that we don't end up sort of justifying sin, and that is not at all what I wish to do. But what I'm saying is that when we sin, or rather when we face up to the fact that we sin, we can remember that actually it is our spiritual weakness. It is our fact that it is the fact that we are not Jesus in practice. We should try to be him, aspire to him, rejoice that we are counted as him, etc. But the bottom line is that we are not him. And that is actually the key to God working through us. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. Now he asks the Lord three times to take this away from him. And he's, it's not given to him. And of course that immediately sends a mind back to Jesus praying in Gethsemane. And there must be an allusion here. Uh, three times he prays to, to have the, the cup of the crucifixion taken away from him. Now, he also goes on uh, there to to say that, in verse 8, that he was buffeted. Uh, Sorry, verse 7, that that this messenger of Satan buffeted him, so that he should not be exalted. And that is the same word used in uh, Matthew 26, 67, uh, Luke 22:42 about Jesus being buffeted in or hit beaten uh, just before just after he's uh, he's captured in, in Gethsemane. So clearly Paul has in mind here a connection between his own moral failure, which is what I suggest the thorn in the flesh was, and the fact that he thereby found a connection between himself and the suffering Jesus in his final hours. Now, we may think that our human sin actually separates us from Jesus. But in a unique way, it doesn't, if, of course, we're repentant of it. Because Jesus there on the cross carried our sin. And when you look at the Messianic Psalms, particularly 22 and 69, which predict his crucifixion. 38 is, is another one. Uh, and, and you look at the, those psalms, uh, and you look at their context, you know, they all ring so true of the crucifixion, but they all had a, an initial application to David. And the context is clearly David in his time of sin with Bathsheba, suffering for his sins. And yet that applied to Jesus on the cross. So Jesus there, as he hung there on the cross in his soul's sufferings there in Gethsemane, was totally identified with us to the point that he felt, as it were, sinful. Not that he was sinful, of course, this is the whole wonder of the whole thing, that he did not sin. But when he says, my God, why have you forsaken me, or how much have you forsaken me, exclamation mark, The Old Testament continually states that God will not forsake his people if they're righteous, and he will forsake them if they sin. And yet when he says, oh my God, why have you forsaken me, or how have you forsaken me? 
he's feeling so totally, genuinely identified with us in our sinfulness that he even feels how sinners feel. He felt how sinners feel, even though he himself personally did not sin. But he felt as if he had because of the extent of his identification with us. And so when we we read statements like, you know, Christ carried our sins on the cross, I mean, what does that mean? I would suggest that it's largely true psychologically, in the sense that he to such an extent was identified with us and with human sin, that he, he felt it as if he was a sinner, although he was not. And in symbol, this was all shown when they were, they'd sinned in the wilderness, and they were bitten by snakes representing sin, and then Moses makes a bronze snake and lifts it up, and whoever looks at the snake lived. Now, it was the very snake that bit them that he, as it were, made into a bronze snake. And Jesus, as you know, in John 3, says that that bronze snake represented him. And yet, the snake represents sin. And I think that that means that he there on the cross was, as it were, a dead snake. Uh, Sin was dead in him, but all the same, he was, as it were, totally identified with human sin, with, with, with the snake. And this would sort of make uh, make some sense of the whole context here. When he says, look, I, I was so exalted, I saw these visions of the third heaven. Um, but so that I should not be exalted above measure, I was given this thorn in the flesh. And incidentally, you'll see that that word thorn is uh, elsewhere translated stake. In fact, the RV margin uses that word uh, a stake. It's an allusion again to the crucifixion. So then, I hope you sort of followed me so far. That I'm suggesting the thorn in the flesh was some sort of moral weakness, possibly a sexual one. And it was given to Paul so that he would not be proud, so that he would realize his own weakness. And yet, in the experience of that sin, or let's say proneness to to sin, I'm not saying that Paul did or did not sin in that way, but he suddenly uh, felt this uh, buffeting and and a thorn in his flesh uh, in some way, uh, in a spiritual sense, this was to keep him humble. And I'm not sure that any physical ailment that's been suggested, like malaria or or poor eyesight, would of itself have made him humble. I don't see it necessarily would do that in in the way that the context, I think, demands. I think a moral weakness would indeed do that. And, of course, my grace is sufficient for you is then so, so relevant. So then God works through our human failures and through our sinfulness. Again and again, I'm not trying to justify sin. I'm saying that God works with us even in our weakness, our moral weakness, and uses that to humble us. And so he doesn't, as it were, just turn away in disgust when we mess up. Or when we have, let's say, a a proclivity, a, a tendency to mess up in a certain area. He uses that. I mean, I'm not accusing Paul of actually having sinned in this sexual area at all. But I'm saying that he's admitting that it was a problem. Something, whether it was sexual or not, but something was a thorn in his flesh. And 
we've all got plenty of those. We've all got thorns in our flesh, one particularly weak area of our lives. I think that's what Hebrews 12.1 is getting, getting at when the writer says, and it may have been Paul, he talks about the, the sin that does so easily beset us. I got this idea many years ago, many years ago now, from uh, Dennis Gillett. Uh, he suggested that, grammatically and practically, he suggested that that, that uh, verse suggests that we all have a particular sin which besets us, the sin that does so easily beset us. And so we've all got that. We've all got that tendency to fail in a particular area. We all have our particular area of weakness, and I mean, I think we all know that anyway. And yet God uses that. He uses that. He does not turn away from us in disgust, but he uses that in order to keep us humble. And so, finally I'd like to conclude with chapter 13, verse 4. Though he was crucified through weakness, yet he lives through the power of God. For we also are weak in him, or with him, but we shall live with him through the power of God. That's, I think, quite profound, that we also are weak in him. The whole idea is that we are him there, and that he there is not just a historical figure, is not just some, somebody that we look at from afar, um, but that we are weak in him. And it's not as if we look at him as if he, he's some icon, that we say, wow, wasn't that sweet, wasn't that amazing, etc. No, we, we are today weak in him. There is that bridge from our weakness to him there. And we feel that very much, I guess, at the breaking of bread. And then he says, verse 5, and let's have this as our final thought. Examine your own selves, whether you be in the faith.